Welcome to the Let Christy Take It podcast. Let Christy Take It would like to thank our sponsors, Irish Woodcraft. Check them out on Instagram and irishwoodcraft.ie for all your guaranteed Irish bespoke furniture needs. On this week's episode, we are joined by British film director, screenwriter and actor Alex Cox. Alex is best known for his work in the punk and independent film movements. One of his most notable films is Repo Man from 1984, a cult classic that blends science fiction and black comedy. His other notable works include Sid and Nancy, a biographical film about the relationship between punk rock musician Sid Vicious and Nancy Spongin. Walker, a historical drama about American mercenary William Walker and the cult western Straight to Hell, which featured the Pogues, Nick Cave and Joe Strummer. He also directed documentaries including The Searchers 2.0. Cox was also the presenter of Movie Drome on BBC Two, which was a must-watch for any cinephile. Aside from his filmmaking career, Alex has taught film at various institutions and has written numerous books on cinema. Let Christy Take It are proud to bring you Alex Cox. If you like our episodes, please like and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. What you got in the trunk? You don't want to look in there. Suppose you're thinking about a plate of shrimp. Suddenly somebody will say, like, plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp, out of the blue, no explanation. No point in looking for one either. It's all part of a cosmic unconsciousness. You eat a lot of acid, Miller, back in the hippie days? Sell that car and send me your money. You don't need that car. Put it on a plate, son. You'll enjoy it more. Couldn't enjoy it anymore, Mom. Mm -mm -mm. This is swell. What's this? (laughs) Charming friends you got there, Otto. Thanks. I made it myself. I had a lobotomy in the end. Lobotomy? Isn't that for loonies? Not at all. A friend of mine had one. I do my best thinking on the bus. That's how come I don't drive, see? You don't even know how to drive. I don't want to know how. I don't want to learn, see? The more you drive, the less intelligent you are. Alex Cox, welcome to the Let Christy Take It podcast. To say that we're only delighted to have you is an understatement. Well, thank you very much. It's delightful to be here. Alex, looking back in your childhood, can you pinpoint any key moment that shaped your interest in movies and filmmaking? Yeah, going to the pictures, you know, I mean, I was, we used to go to the pictures. There were lots of cinemas in those days and, and God, I went to the pictures a lot. I saw It's a Mad, 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 Mad World and, and I saw Dario Gill and the Little People and um, many other films, you know, and it was just exciting. The cinema was a very exciting place. You know? I never <laughs> thought I would be in it, but I did 
enjoy it enormously. Initially, your academic life started off with you studying law. How did that, what was, what was the prompt that moved you from law to film studies? Well, it was, the thing was, it was, it was, uh, it, in those days, if you, I mean, I had like very, very kind parents, you know, who wanted me to succeed. I mean, and, and as they saw it, you know, in those days, there was no possibility of having a career in the arts, you know. And so if you couldn't be a scientist, the only thing left to you was to be a lawyer, right? So I ended up getting, going to Oxford. I, I had a, uh, place at Worcester College, Oxford, at an exhibition to attend, and I was on a gown, and I was a law student for three years and got my degree, but I, I spent the whole time doing plays. I did nothing but plays. Um, and at that time, the Oxford Playhouse didn't have a professional theatre company, so it was dark most of the year. And so what they did was they just turned it over to the students. And so I, my first experience doing plays was like in a professional theater. Um, and it was incredible, you know, the capacities that were suddenly at your, you know, available to a young person. And so I didn't realize that my options were limited in any way. Um, and can you tell us how you got the Fulbright scholarship to UCLA? I just applied for it. I'd gone to film school at Bristol for a year. And I have a degree in, or, or a certificate in radio, film, and television studies from the University of Bristol. And I'd applied for a Fulbright to go to America for a year and be a, a film student. And I got, the, I got it, you know, and so off I went. And um, I was there for a year, and then I extended that. You could extend it for a certain number of years, and I did that. And I married an American girl, and, and that was that, you know, and, and, and I just worked on other people's films and wrote scripts and eventually managed to sell a screenplay. And then I got partnered up with two, two fellows who'd been at UCLA at the same time I was there. And they were the producers. I was the director. And I gave them this script called Repo Man. And many years went by trying to get it on. And we finally did. I think we sent out, in those days, they didn't have PDFs, you know, or a computer. So we sent out, I think, 100 copies of the screenplay, you know, with uh, three-hole punch, and uh, all rejected, and then ran, and then, and then through uh, the intervention of a very nice woman called Abby Wool, we met um, Michael Nesmith, who was one of the monkeys, had been one of the monkeys, and he had when he was rich, he had had Rolls Royces and Bentleys and, and that and, and all these stush vehicles, which were then all repossessed um, by the repo men and ran out of money. Um, then his mother invented um, whiteout liquid paper, and he was a millionaire again. And uh, in that new incarnation, Nesmith took um, repo men to the studio and actually raised us. A million dollars to make it. And Alex, how did the script get to him? Did he, did you send it to him or just by chance did somebody recommend no, it, was, it to him? Uh, this very nice woman, Abby, she gave it to a friend of her father's, a guy called Harry Gittis. And Harry Gittis was a sort of a quasi producer in Hollywood. He was a friend of Jack Nicholson. And that was where the name of Jack Nicholson's character in Chinatown, JJ Gittis, came from. Uh, anyway, Harry Gittis knew Michael Nesmith. Harry Gittis passed the script on to Michael Nesmith, and Nesmith was the person who optioned it. And Alex, when you were making Repo Man, uh, no, as a novice, as a first time out, how did you handle challenges 
while making the film or did you just roll with it and, and kind of not engage with just letting that, letting Noki just keep on going? Well, I think just every day you show up and you do, you do your job, you know. I mean, I was very lucky in that the cinematographer, Robbie Muller, was extremely experienced, extremely artistic. He had made, he had shot Vin Vendor's films, Kings of the Road and uh, The American Friend. So he was one of the best, best, best cinematographers in the world. And we were incredibly lucky to have him. And when you have like skilled professionals like um, Robbie Muller and and Harry Dean Stanton and Cy Richardson, you know, it's just, and Vanetta McGee, you just let them go, you know, let them go and follow them. And would you ever felt like nervous or kind of uncomfortable trying to tell Harry Dean Stanton how to do something or did you just do it or just roll with him? Well, it was difficult with Harry because Harry was, a, as, as Harry frequently said, he was a complicated character. And I think that he was filled with disgruntlement that because he was such a good actor that he hadn't achieved greater recognition you know uh repo man was the first film um that harry got the principal billing in you know and he was you know so he should have been very grateful <laughs> <laughs> but no good deed goes unpunished and so um so harry was kind of pissed off at me throughout the process but i think also it had to do with our ages because I was 29 and he was 58. And I think that he, I find being associated with younger people is very beneficial because it gives you an insight into things that you don't know and stops you becoming desiccated. But I think that for Harry, it was the opposite. I think Harry felt a bit offended that he was supposed to take instructions from this youth, you know. Uh, he was Harry Dean Stanton, you know. And so it was a tough, it was a, uh, you know, a tough experience, but boy, he was such a good actor. Uh, we have to ask about the inspiration behind the choices for the film soundtrack. How do you believe it contributed to the overall atmosphere of the movie? Oh, enormously, because it was, it was a sort of a, uh, a showcase of the Los Angeles punk scene in the early 80s. Because punk happened a little bit later in the U.S. than in um, than across the water, and our uh, our local bands, you know, in in Los Angeles were actually quite good. I mean, there was a really great bunch of groups. There was like X and uh, Suicidals and Fear, Black Flag, Circle Jerks, all these great bands, you know. Um, and so the album was a, a sort of a sampler of LA punk music. And so when the film was finished and the studio really didn't like it, but the studio was like a branch of a record company. And at one point, the record guy, the old gangster who runs the record company calls his homologue at, at Universal Studios and says, uh, hey, uh, hey, Jules, you know, who's, uh, who's handling this, this uh, Repo Man project? And Jules goes, ah, oh, it's a piece of shit, ignore it, you know. And, and, and the guy goes, well, you know, we got this record here it's selling really well, this record Repo Man. And I wonder, isn't there a movie that goes with that, you know? And so actually within, there was a kind of a, a, a struggle within the power politics of Universal Pictures. And in the end, they were forced to re-release the film because the album was selling really well, you know, the record album, the vinyl record album. No. But that's what I was going to ask you. So the public's reaction to the soundtrack was pivotal to the success of the movie, didn't you? 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, and, and Los Angeles was a magnet at that time. I mean, all the bands came to play in LA. I saw The Clash in LA. I saw 999. Um, all, all the bands came to LA. And uh, Iggy Pop moved to LA because he knew that something was going on in Los Angeles that wasn't happening in New York. And he lived in Los Angeles for a couple of years just to kind of embrace that scene. And so he ended up writing our, our principal, principal song. Alex, can I ask you a question about that? I watched the re we were researching for this and we both have conflicting stories on how Iggy got onto the soundtrack. I watched a, a clip in an interview where he said that you came up to his apartment just off the whiskey, knocked at the door, came in and you said, I want you to do it. And he said he was on his arse and you saved his career. And Derek, you heard a different view. I, I, I read somewhere today that um, Iggy Pop's manager saw a rough cut of the movie and said to him, you're, you're writing a fucking song for this film. So which is true? Neither is entirely true because we just, we contacted Iggy through his manager, who was a guy called Danny Sugarman, who wrote uh, a biography of... Jim the Door. Hall. Yeah, no one here gets our uh, Wonderland Avenue he wrote as well, didn't he? he? I don't know. I've only read that one, but he wrote that biography of Jim Morrison. And anyway, so we contacted his manager and we arranged a screening and they both came. Um, Danny... Danny Sugarman and James Osterberg, um, alias Iggy, both came to the screening and they liked the film. They were very, you know, they enjoyed it. It was still a work in progress. We hadn't quite finished, obviously, because there was no music. Um, but Iggy was totally into it. And so he wrote that song. And then I went by his place in, in, uh, uh, off the Sunset Strip to listen to the result. So we had already met. I wasn't just cold calling him. <laughs> okay. I didn't know where he lived anyway. I wouldn't have been able to find him. It's, a, it's, it's mad you mentioned Danny Sugarman, honestly, because one of my favorite books of all time is known here, or the, the Wonderland Avenue. Story, story of his, his, his own struggles with heroin addiction. Yeah. Alex, we have to ask you about the the blank product placement within, within Repo Man. Was that a, a message you were trying to convey to the cinema course? Yeah, well, only because we couldn't get any product placement. Because originally we thought, you know, hey, we'll get loads of free beer, you know. Um, we're just going to get tons of free beer, you know, and we couldn't get any product placement except for those Christmas trees, the little uh, air freshener Christmas trees that losers hang from their rearview mirror. And uh, and so we thought, right, OK, well, we're not going to have any product placement there. And so that's where the generics came from. It was just spite at, at capitalist America for not giving us free stuff. Brilliant. And the movie is now definitely seen as a classic. How do you film? How do you view the film's legacy and its impact on subsequent generations of movie makers? Well, I like I like that it's still around. I like that people are, you know, people's grandparents are showing it to their to their grandchildren. I'm very pleased about that. That's a good thing. I hope that uh, I hope that, that continues. Oh, I'm sure I will. Um, so you go from Repo Man and straight into a biopic, uh, Sid and Nancy. How did you feel? You know, you're a lover of punk, it runs through your veins. Were you apprehensive taking this on or were you dying to do it? No, because I, you see, I had no respect for London. I was never from London and I, I, was, I grew up outside Liverpool. And so I had nothing but contempt for London. Still the same, hate London. And, uh, and so it was just a song about, it was just a film about this guy who happened to be a, a Londoner, you know, but we didn't hold it against him, Sid Vicious. Um, and his doomed love affair with Nancy Spongeon. And by then I'd had a few doomed love affairs. And so it was easy to, to like put oneself in Sid's 
situation or Nancy's situation. And uh, and we were lucky. We were lucky. We had a, we had an up and coming, uh, you know, very well connected producer. We had a wonderful uh, executive producer um, from out of Central Television, Margaret Matheson, and uh, and a great cameraman, Roger Deakins. It was only his second feature film, and of course, good cast. I mean, boy, Gary Gary Oldman. That was his first feature. Chloe Webb. It was her her first feature. David Heyman. You know, it was just a great cast. Drew Schofield, wonderful actor. And it's known for its raw and gritty portrayal of the punk rock culture. Uh, how did you go about capturing the authenticity of the era? And what kind of research did you do? And were any of the band members involved? I know we spoke to Glenn Matlock before, and uh, he's kind of reluctant to speak outside of the band, so to say. Oh, he was very much involved. Because it was, I, mean, I did a lot of research beforehand. I interviewed a bunch of people who had known the Pistols, um, people from the, what they called the Bromley contingent, uh, you know, who were who were friends of the of the group and of McGarren and Westwood. Uh, so I did a lot of interviewing with people, talked to as many people who had known Sid Vicious and Nancy Spongeon as I could. Um, but I don't think that really it's a, a true representation of of punk in, in in London at that time, because you know, if you see any any video or sixteen millimeter of of the scene as it was. It's just a few skinny lads jumping up and down doing the punk pogo, you know, and what I was used to was the mosh pit, you know, I was used to the Los Angeles style, you know, throng of, you know, boys in checkered shirts running around in a circle, you know, and so I was, so we, we definitely didn't create, we, we exaggerated everything, you know, what was small, we made big, you know, um, and we made it kind of, you know, so we made it into an epic. Yeah. And Alex, how do you navigate the ethical considerations of portraying real-life individuals and events, uh, you know, especially the, the controversial nature of Sid and Nancy's story? Well, I mean, you have to kind of tell the truth, because if they're alive, especially if the people are alive, they can sue you. So you cannot tell lies, you know. So there are no lies that I'm aware of in Sid and Nancy. There are exaggerations, you know, and there are speculations. But uh, you can't tell outright lies about people because... Um, they will come after you with their learned friends. So that's interesting, doing a biopic about people who are still alive. You have to do an awful lot of research and, and be able to justify it. So I had I spent a day with lawyers, like, you know, trying to convince them that everything was kosher. And then we did. Yeah. And the soundtrack uh, is integral to the film's uh, atmosphere. How do you approach selecting the music? And do you, do you kind of know? And here is going to go here, or this song would be perfect. Would it, would it kind of create a scene in your mind, or would it come to you as you're filming it? No, because I don't know anything about music at all. So I just let him go again. You know, it's like, and we were lucky because we had um, Dan Wall, who I'd worked with before as a composer in his band, uh, Pray for Rain. We had Joe Strummer writing numerous songs, which he sneaked in all around the film. And we had the Pogues um, writing original music for it, including. Shane McGowan wrote that beautiful song, Haunted uh, by the Ghost of Your Precious Love, you know, which people think of that now as a duet with Sinead O'Connor, but really it was a, it, for the film, it was sung uh, with Kate Grin. Yeah. And, uh, and it was just lovely. It was a lovely song and very haunting. Yeah. You know, what a talented group of individuals. It's a sad loss. Like speaking yeah, of Shane McGowan, that loss, and we've lost, I and mean, we already lost Chevron, and now we've lost um, 
Shaheen and there are others who aren't in very good health, you know, so. But Actually, this, what happens when you get old? Yeah. Uh, speaking of Shane and the Pogues, we have to ask you about Straight to Hell. I mean, you yeah. got The Clash, The Pogues, Elvis Costello, Joe Strummer. That's just to name a few. Dennis Hopper. How did you get them all together? Um, one, how did you get them all together? How did you control them? And where did your love for spaghetti westerns come from? Well, we, oh, my love for spaghetti westerns came from seeing them in the cinema and going to see them at the pictures, you know, in Liverpool and Birkenhead. Um, but we had originally planned to do a rock and roll tour of Nicaragua in support of the Nicaraguan people and the Sandinista government in 1985. And or six. Anyway, um, we and all these bands, um, the Pogues, Joe, um, Elvis Costello, they'd all committed to um, going on tour for a month in Nicaragua. And we're thinking, you know, we'll, we'll just we'll take them all out there and we'll go around town to town. We'll go to, you know, Matagalpa, Masai, we'll go to Managua, we'll go to Leon, we'll, you know, and just play music in support of the revolution. And obviously, it's going to be a big thing, and and um, a, a record company will pay for it, you know, or we'll make a video sale. Well, what a surprise! It was impossible to get any of these cap these capitalist record companies to put up a penny to pay for a, a revolutionary rock and roll tour in Nicaragua. So after months of trying to get this going, um, I was in this really embarrassing situation of having persuaded Strummer and the Pogues. Um, and Elvis um, to go on a tour of Nicaragua, which wasn't going to happen. And then um, the producer, who was a very smart guy, who'd come out of um, videos, you know, pop videos, um, said, well, why don't you try and make a feature instead and sell it on the basis of all of these musicians? And so I said, okay, let's do it. So he said, well, I need a script. So in two days, I and one of the principal actors, Dick Rude, wrote this script, um, which I think was originally called The Legend of Paddy Garcia, but we changed the title to Straight to Hell. Um, and, uh, and amazingly, the money was found. A million dollars, again, came from uh, Island Records, who had set up a film subsidiary. And off we went and did it, you know. And um, it was... It was a very nice experience. It was a lovely experience. They were all such lovely people. So, and it wasn't hard really to corral them because once they were out there on that, in that little town in the middle of the desert, they couldn't really go anywhere. You couldn't really wander off because there wasn't anywhere to wander off to unless you were just going to go out in the desert. And so, um, you know, nobody disappeared. All the, no, and, and the line producer from uh, Almeria, uh, Carl Brown, Charlie Brown, he said, you know, every Monday morning I'm going to have to go around and get these guys out of jail, you know, because that's what he'd had to do on other movies like American movies, British movies in the past, is go and drag the actors out of jail on Monday morning, set, you know. Never had to do that. Never had to drag anybody out of jail, you know. Um, it was all, it all went very smoothly. It was a very, very, very pleasant experience. It made me love Joe and it made me love the pose, right? Can I ask you about, you've heard the comparisons that Norwood and Jules from Pulp Fiction, but I think it goes even deeper with Tarantino and you. I think he he, he looked at Straight to Hell and Repo Man and took a lot. I know he's a magpie, but can you see the similarities in the characters? 
Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely in, uh, in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, because that's that's Sai's character, isn't it? Um, yeah, I wish that Sai had had more of a stellar career because he's such a fine actor and he's still working. But somehow he didn't get that. He, for some some reason, the studio pictures never never came to him. He always remained in these independent. Alex, straight to hell and, and the following movie, Walker, didn't get the love or appreciation from viewers that your earlier movies had. H how did you handle that? Well, I mean, what could I do about it? It wasn't anything I could do. You know, they either like it or they don't, you know. Um, I remember thinking at the time, oh, you know, really screwed up with Straight to Hell, made a big mistake, you know. But but looking at it in retrospect, I don't think so at all. I think it's just fine, you know. It's just what it's the film I wanted to make, and I find it very entertaining and funny and beautiful. I love the celebration of the of the location, you know, the uh, the Amaria Desert and that crumbling western town that we worked in, and I and I love all the cast, you know, and the music. You know. I think it's great. I like it a lot. And Walker too. Walker even more. Walker, I was very happy with. You know, Walker was our. You know, Nicaraguan Solidarity Tour, only bigger. Walker has gotten much more love since the DVD release a couple of years ago, and 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 it's definitely getting its its appreciation that it duly deserves. Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, nothing mm. has changed. You know, you just took the situation now is, is Venezuela. You know, the US is gonna is gonna get those guys one way or another. They're gonna get that oil. You know, so it's interesting how little changes. We, you know, as lifelong movie fans, myself and Kieran, that's how we first met, believe it or not, when we were kids talking about movies. Um, and big, big fans of Movie Drone. And we would look forward to what was, you know, in store each week. How did you get involved with Movie Drone? Uh, there was a thing on the BBC, uh, I forget what the name of the series was, but it was a series where they had uh, film directors introduce a film or two. Do a little introduction. So they have, and they had the great, the good one, Lindsay Anderson and Nicholas Rowe, Stephen Frears, you know, real proper film directors, you know, uh, talking about, um, talking about movies. And what they would do, the BBC would send a camera crew around to the director's house. And so it, they always ended up the director sitting in front of the fireplace, you know, and so you see the corner of the fireplace, back there, the director talking and the wall behind it, that beige. And everybody's house was the same. And because I didn't live in London, they asked me to do the last of the season and to introduce a double bill of being point blank and something else, maybe the killers, um, Lee Marvin double bill. And they said, and we'll come around to your house to do it. And I said, I haven't got a house. Um, don't live in London. And so they said, well, where should we do it? And I said, let's do it at the Lloyd's building. Because the Lloyd's Insurance Building at that time was a fairly new building, which was famous for its inside-out architecture. It was like the Pompidou Center in Paris. You know, you could see all the pipes and all the all the, the stuff that would normally be hidden was clearly in view on the exterior of the building. It's a great-looking building. So I said, "Let's do it in the Lloyd's Building." So we did. I, I shot my intros in the Lloyd's Building, and of course, the backdrops that I had were incredible. There were gigantic escalators and weird machines and all this stuff going on in the background. And um, so when they were looking for someone to front the series of movie draw, they looked at all of the, the videos they'd shot with these various British film directors. And of course, mine was the best because I had the best background. 
So I got the job of movie drum because we shot at the Lloyd's Bridge. And all of the movies that you would have talked about week in, week out. And I did read somewhere today that you didn't actually get to pick the film that they were going to show. But of all the one films... Or two, one or two I did. I mean, I uh, mostly they were picked by Nick Freehand Jones, who was the yeah. producer. Because he was he would go down to the bottom of the barrel of what the BBC had under license and pull it out, you know. He, the long hair of death, you know, and, and, and we'd show that. But I was able to get some films purchased. I think that we... I persuaded the BBC to buy uh, Django, the original Django. Django uh, Kills. The Great Silence, um, also by Corbucci, and a film called Requiescent, directed by Carlo Lizani, who's one of the great Italian masters. And so, in that sense, I did have a certain influence on Movie Drone because I was able to, to arrange the first official screenings of those films in the english-speaking world i think uh no i think django had had a release in the u.s but the great silence and requiescent nobody had ever seen and so and nobody had seen them in england you know unless you were lucky and you had a video copy so that was um that was my contribution to movie films, those three italian can i ask you alex um do you remember the sam raimi film i'm sure i've seen it on movie drama i can't find it anywhere in any research the one you directed after jeeva had a slapstick comedy i can't remember the name of it it got slated. I'm sure he's had it on that. Do you recall if he had it on about the rat catcher? I now, remember. Bruce Campbell has come out and said it's the worst film ever made. But I remember, th I thought it was hilarious. I can't even remember the name of it. Somebody's going to come on now and tell us. But you know what? I'm sure I saw it movie. I should have researched it. And I'll just come into my head there. I probably wouldn't remember it anyway. I mean, we showed, <laughs> we showed a lot of films. I mean, we showed like some 26 films a year. Um, and even though they were, they, they were spread out over the, course of six months but but we recorded all the introductions over a couple of days so it was, um you know, and running from one little location to another to have a different background of the green screen <laughs> yeah. one of my younger colleagues was asking me today about you know and i said oh he did all these movies that movie drama so he said what was movie drama i said do you know what it was like a dvd commentary before dvds in a bite size where you got a bit of background to the film and then they gave you an interest in the film rather than just here's a film and he kind of got it but i think it's, it's something they could still do well i loved it. it was brilliant the other thing that was interesting about it was that i was allowed to slate the films you know i didn't have to say it was great you know we could show betty blue or not yeah and i said well i really don't like this film very much but there's one scene where the art department have painted the walls of this apartment the same color as a packet of gitan cigarettes you know, and the cigarettes are lying on the floor, and they've designed the whole set around the pack of, around the pack of cigarette, and so so I could do that. I could say this film isn't very good, but it's worth watching because you will see interesting editing or a great moment or a good performance. You know, and so that was fun because so much of the time I think the presenter has to be like a cheerleader, you know, and has to pretend that everything is great. You know, and that was the nice thing about movie drama is it's a bit more a bit more anarchic than you can say what you really felt. And how I did seen, you feel when, uh, when Repo? Sorry, Derek. How did you feel when Repo Man came on? What, what was brought up to come on? To it? Did you? Not mine. No. I don't think that I presented the screening of Repo Man. I think that probably my successor. I I presented a screening of Walker. On, oh, Walker. Uh, that's what I was thinking of. On uh, Movie Drum, and I read the the review from the monthly film bulletin, which was completely negative. So I just read this negative review and, and then screened the film. <laughs> 
I was going to say, before you jump on to your next question, Kieran, I, I seen a double bill of uh, Betty Blue and Blue Velvet in a small little cinema in, in oh. Dublin when I was a young, young, younger man. And I tell you, I have a, a li- lifelong love for Beatrice Dahl and also Isabella Rossellini because of that. With the connection there being that they were both had blue in the title. <laughs> I, 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 maybe I thought it was getting, you know, a bit of blue when you were a young fella, you know? Two blue movies. Yeah, two ama- amazing films. Alex, as well as directing, you've also acted in more than 35 projects. Uh, what appeals to you about acting? Is it something that you've always wanted to do or did you just do it because you fancy it? Oh, yeah. No, I always wanted to be an actor. I didn't want to be a director. I wanted to be an actor. But the thing is, um, I realized that there were so many people who were more talented than I was. Um, and that I was never going to make it as an actor, at least in my youth, because there were so many more talented people and lots and lots of people wanted to be actors. You know? and at that time, to being a director wasn't quite as, as, as in demand a profession as it later became. So uh, I thought either, either I could be a production designer or I could be a director, and I became a director. But I like acting a lot. Acting is a lot of fun. It, it really is. And Alex, uh, as a director, can you sit back and kick back and watch a movie without kind of saying, I do this different or that, that's great? You know, can you take your professional head off and just get lost in a film? Not really, no, because the thing is, films are so predictable. I mean, normally you can go kind of like that and they cut, you know, like that and they cut, that and they cut. You know, it's, it's very rare that one sees a film which is surprising or inspiration. But of course, when you do, it's fantastic. You know, and then if the film's really good, yeah, then I can sit back and be absorbed by it. You know, <laughs> but most films, by definition, not. Is there a particular director, Alex, that you would have liked or would would still like to work with? Oh, as an actor, yes, uh, alive or dead, <laughs> your choice. <laughs> well, if you're going to still work with them, they have to be alive. But I mean. <laughs> Oh, you know what I thought was really good? I thought that the film directed by Stephen Queen, Hunger, um, about Bobby Sands, I thought that was an excellent film. Fassbender. Yes, with Fassbender. I thought it was a really excellent film. Very well directed. There's one scene in that film which is like 14 minutes long, but the camera doesn't even move, and it's just on Bobby Sands and the breeze. Um, so yeah, yeah. So as an actor, I would like to work for Steve McQueen. Fantastic. I've got the black bring it back to director, not Steve McQueen. But yeah, 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 yeah. No, we got it. <laughs> um, I'm going to bring you back to the Pogues and the, the video shoot for a pair of brown eyes. Very 1984. Anti Thatcher with the graffiti. As you can imagine, it went down well in Ireland. How did you get involved with making that video? Oh, I think they just got in touch. You know, because of Repo Man had just come out in. Uh, in England, it had been uh, released in London by Artificial Eye, and the Pogues were looking for somebody to direct their video. And so I was very fortunate to be introduced to the Pogues, and I passed the audition and um, and did that video. And uh, yeah, isn't it great? All the Thatcher stuff. I saw the video again the other day, and it was something great to see them all spray painting Thatcher. And uh, Keir Starmer should watch that video. <laughs> His mouth out with open water. Alex, we could talk to you all night, but uh, what's next for Alex Cox? What have you got in the pipeline? I'm I'm working on a Western version of Dead Souls by Nikolai Gogol, um, which I, I hope I will make either in Mexico or in Almeria uh, in the new year. 
Grand. Well, Alex Cox, it's been an absolute pleasure. We wrap with this question. It's last orders in the last chance saloon for your love of Westerns. You're down to your last dollar. There's a jukebox in the corner. It's one song for one dollar. What does Alex Cox play out to? Oh, but I get a double bill because I get uh, Streets of Sorrow by Terry Woods and Birmingham Six by Shane McGowan. To take well, they, they're the songs that we're going to play this uh, interview. Oh, Alex, you've no idea. Myself and Karen have been on edge about this for the last since you agreed to come on. Big movie fans, big fans of your work. Um, so from myself, Kieran, our producer, Mark, Alex Cox, thanks very much. And thank you very much. It's been very nice. There was six women Just when